Good evening. Welcome to Night Time. I'm Dave Wager from the Relate 365 Leadership Team, your host for the next half hour. We're hoping that God will use this time to help you unwind from the business of this day and begin to prepare for tomorrow. Often, when we start the process of going to sleep, we can take a moment to reflect on the day and see how we responded to the various people and situations we encountered. Hopefully, you're able to live and not just endure this day. Each night as we start our time together, I want to remind you of some critical thoughts that so often get lost in the plethora of stimuli we seem immersed in. God is a God of love, and He loves you. And He has a plan, and you can be in His plan if you want to be. If you had trouble finding God today, it was because you did not truly seek Him. If for some reason you're angry, disappointed, or choosing to disobey God, you don't know Him. If you've been listening to the past few episodes, you realize I've been going through a book that I wrote called Beyond the Deception. It's basically a book that talks about how we can recognize deceivers, and that's very important. It's important because when you're deceived, you don't know you're deceived. You actually think that what you're doing is correct, and so there's no reason to change what you're doing. Throughout it, we're trying to build a puzzle. And after each chapter, I give a puzzle piece that fits into a master puzzle. God has given us his word. His word is truth, and we need to discover truth, not make it up. This series of books, published by Grace Acres Press in Colorado, were written to help people understand what it is to have a time where they read scripture and wrestle with the concepts that are portrayed there and actually respond to them thinking through them that's why there's a couple blank pages behind each thought and we're on thought 11 before we read the verse from second peter there's a thought at the top of the page that says Salvation is being free from the penalty and power of sin while being able to look forward to being free from its very presence one day. 2 Peter 1.5 in the New Living Translation says this, In view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge. It was 2 Peter 1.5. So often we are deceived into believing that once we place our faith in Christ, we need not do anything else. This may be partly true, and that our salvation comes solely from our faith in Christ alone. But salvation is much more than a fire escape from hell. In fact, Peter tells us that those who fail to continue to develop in their Christian faith 
are short-sighted, blind, and rather forgetful of the simple fact that their old sinful life was a bad thing, not a good thing. This may be one of the greatest deceptions used by Satan in the church today, responsible for the fact that we have many in our pews who make little or no effort to apply the benefits of the promises God has given in their lives. The fact that God is creator and sustainer of life should mean something to us. The fact that God sent his only son to pay for my sins should elicit a response from me. The fact that God is older than me, smarter than me, and loves me should make my life different. Yet in almost every survey I have read, those who claim to be Christians have no noticeable lifestyle differences from those who do nothing or know nothing of Christ. In fact, there seems to be an army of so-called Christians ready to push the legalism button to anyone who displays any form of conviction. There seems to be a tremendous atmosphere of tolerance towards anyone who chooses to practice sin. While we subtly punish those who choose to keep their lives from being stained by the sins of this world, it seems as if almost any practice is acceptable, any entertainment is acceptable, and any form of greed seems justifiable. There is a process that should take place in the lives of believers that moves them away from themselves and their personal agendas toward God and His agenda. This process can and will be hindered by sin, so we need to identify sin, confess it, and set up our environments to minimize it. This does not make you a legalist unless you think doing things that make you better in God's sight or more or less acceptable. God will never love you more or love you less than he does right now. However, his love for you does not mean that he approves everything you do. Somehow in our culture, we have gotten into the atmosphere of thinking that if you don't agree with me, you don't like me. The truth of the matter is, you can love somebody very deeply. You can be committed to a person and disagree with them and disagree with what they're doing with their lives and disagree with decisions that they make. And you can still love them very much. We really need to be able to open dialogues with one another, not shut the door on dialogues. We need to be able to express our differences without believing that condemnation is around the corner. I think there's some easy words that the church likes to throw around. I think it's easy to call somebody a legalist and not really know what it means. In fact, two people can do the very same action and one be a legalist and one be doing it out of conviction. I'm not sure you would be able to tell the difference or I would be able to tell. See, a legalist does things not with their heart, but just with their head. They haven't really agreed with God. They've made an arrangement with God. 
and they're hoping that they're good enough someday for God to tap them on the head and say, you're in my family. Being in God's family has nothing to do with how good we are. It has to do with how good God is. Being in God's family isn't about my perfection, but God's perfection. It isn't about what I offer to God. It's about what God offered to us in His Son, Jesus Christ. We need to be careful. Legalism starts putting us on a pedestal because of all the good that we do. Now I would tell you that you should do good regardless of why you do it. Some might disagree, but I think being in the habit of doing what's right is important and I would correct the language of good to being right because when you do right, you're good. And if you don't do right, it's not good. We've talked on this program before about God being a good God. And how confusing that really is. And Jesus in the New Testament, when God was called good, began to question what good meant. We have to remember that good always needs a comparison, always. And there's no way to compare anybody or anything to God. So in a strange sense, God isn't good. He's right. And in an exact sense, being right is what makes him good. I know I've probably totally confused you. But in order for somebody to be good, they need to do right things. God always does right things, always. He never has and never will do something wrong. Therefore, he's good because he does right things. We as people sometimes don't do right things, which means we're not good. It doesn't mean that we don't do right things once in a while. It means that we don't do right things all the time. In Romans 3.23, we're told that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, my job is to show people who God is. Not just to tell them who He is, but to show them who He is and use the words and communication skills I have to back up my actions. But when I don't do right, that's not good. We don't compare ourselves to people and situations that are easy to make us look good and we compare ourselves to perfection. And when you compare yourself to perfection, you're not good, you're sinful. So God is the only one that's actually good. If you understand the terminology of good. And you and I, we can be good when we do what's right and we're supposed to be good by choosing to do what's right. 
but choosing to do what's right so that we can elevate ourselves is where the legalism comes from. Those of you that are parents know that you love your children and you love them really the same. Oh, I'm not saying that one child doesn't irritate you one way and another child another way and one doesn't thrill you one way and one thrill you another way because they're different. But no matter what your children do, you love them. You're committed to them. You would like to see their best. Now they can decide that they will just do whatever you say, but really behind your back and in their heart, they, they don't embrace what you say. In a way, it's an act, a show because the real person is not convinced that what you say is true. They're convinced what they say is true. Therefore, in your presence, and when they want people to think about it, they act a certain way, that's legalism. When they understand that you are correct in what you say and they embrace the correctness, the rightness of what you have said, they're no longer legalism. They're actually just making wise decisions. If I decide that I'm not going to watch a particular movie because it's got scenes in it that would be destructive to pure thought, it doesn't make me legalistic, it makes me wise. Unless, of course, I'm sitting there thinking that I'm superior to others because I don't do that and I start talking about how others are shamefully sick because of the fact that they watch these movies. Legalism is a really hard thing to figure out. It's kind of like greed. If you were ask people in a room if they were greedy to raise their hand, probably very few would do that. Because we can redefine greed to mean everybody but us. We can redefine legalism to mean everybody but us as well. God, throughout His Word, has tried to help us understand what it is. The Pharisees in the Old Testament were legalistic. They would really be about themselves. Everything that they did was about themselves, but it was cloaked with the idea of being religious and used of God. I guess in general that's what legalism is putting a show on for others to have them think that you love God. When you don't, you love yourself. And that may be the hardest thing for us to realize, is that we are somebody who keeps putting ourselves before everybody else. And if rules makes us feel elevated, then rules we shall live by. But once again, the rules in and of themselves do not make you legalistic. Every single person 
has rules for their lives if they have relationships. As a married man, I have rules of how I will encounter or meet with single women. I have rules as far as when I go home every day when we can, taking a three-mile walk with my wife. You can call those legalistic rules, or you can say that's very smart of you to do that. I could be doing them for legalistic reasons, or I could be doing them because it's wise to do them. I think when we start throwing out terms to people, we're just really trying to justify the things that we do in life. And we wouldn't be legalistic, would we? We throw a lot of terms around. We talk about what grace is or what mercy is. And again, we could spend the whole program just talking of terms and defining them. But the habit we need to look at is how we actually use the words and try and avoid accountability. The truth of the matter is, God is gracious and merciful and loves me. And he also knows that I'm sinful. When I repent, I agree with God, but I don't just agree with him intellectually. I agree with him. And if I agree with him, I start acting differently. You know, the difference is very much like a child who has been told to tell his brother or sister he's sorry and he walks over there and says, I'm sorry, but didn't mean it. The parent can think, well, we were successful. He did something wrong. He said he was sorry. There's nothing more we can do. He did say he was sorry, but he didn't really repent. Repentance doesn't really have to do with even sorrow. It has to do with agreeing saying, I'm wrong, I agree with you, God. What you say is right and I'm wrong. See, that's repentance. But if we say that, if we say that God is right and we are wrong and then we continue to live wrong, it's much more like we were forced to say we were sorry. Repentance isn't sorrow, although sorrow may be attached to it. And perhaps sorrow needs to be attached to it just as a byproduct. I don't know the psychology of everything. But repentance is agreeing with God and telling myself that any thought that's wayward, any thought that's different than God's is wrong. And then I start living in the context of the truth that I have. The piece of the truth puzzle is really kind of three pieces with this lesson. It's really focusing in on the three aspects of salvation. There's, there's three, not one or two. The first aspect, 
is that we're free from the penalty of sin, the past sins in our life. When you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you're free from the penalties that would come from this sinful life that you've lived because Jesus paid for those sins on the cross. That would be the first aspect of salvation. The third aspect of salvation is freedom from the presence of sin. You see, one day when we die on this earth, and everybody will, because the Bible tells us that it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment from a just judge who will see and does see and say things truthfully. But in his presence there will be no sin, so we can look forward to a time when we live where there's no sin anymore where we live in a way that we were created to live in the first place, but gave that up because we had a better idea in the Garden of Eden. But most of us really spend our time focusing on that first aspect of salvation, that we're free from the penalty of sin, and that third aspect, where we'll one day be free from the very presence of sin. And maybe even as we sit in church, we rejoice and sing songs and think about how wonderful it is that our sins will not be held against us. And that one day, all the pain that sin has caused, we won't be in that anymore. But it's the second aspect of salvation that I really want you to focus on. That's freedom from the power of sin. See, it's a past, present, and future aspects. Past, free from the penalty of sin. Present, free from the power of sin. Future, free from the very presence of sin. You see, once you're free from the power of sin, you realize how powerful the death of Jesus was. If you would get to know God and love him and listen to him and you would always do what God says, you would be free from the power of sin. It could not control you. You know, in some strange and weird way, that's pretty easy when you think about it. I don't have to make up the most important things in the world. I don't have to experiment to see if they work. I just need to listen to God. That's all I have to do. If I listen to him, then I'm right. And if I'm right, I'm good. Doesn't mean I'm not sinful. I need to be able to rejoice in the past I need to be able to rejoice in the fact that the sins in my life have been paid for and that God will never bring them to account. I believe it's Psalm 103 that says, as far as the east is from the west, he's removed the sins from his memory. And that needs to be something that's exciting for me. But If I don't understand the importance of being free from the power of sin, I am missing a great aspect of salvation. When Jesus was asked why he came to earth, he didn't say 
to die in order to keep people from burning in hell. He said, I came to give them life. When you think about that, the people that live without Jesus are not experiencing life the way God intended it to be. They're experiencing all of the ravaging of sin, which is death. And death is always defined by separation. They're experiencing a separation from God. They're experiencing life the way it was never intended to be. And in that separation from God, they're experiencing depression and anger and lust and they seek power and privilege and position. They hope their names are on buildings when they pass away and they hope they never really die. They put all their eggs in this basket of now, not realizing that now is very short and becomes yesterday very quickly. Focusing on the present aspect of salvation empowers us to be able to do what's right without getting legalistic. You see, the grace of God, Titus 2.11 through 13, says the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And it teaches us, the grace of God, it teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And the next verse goes on to talk about looking to the future. You see, the grace of God, the idea that I am in God's family, the very idea that God is my Father, drives me to live in a different way because I'm part of His family. I don't live that way because I need to be in his family. I live that way because I am in his family. If there was an orphan child who wanted to be in my family, so he started to wax my car and cut my lawn and do all kinds of things so that he could be in my family, I would have to tell him that's not how you get in my family. There's really only two ways. There's adoption in his case, or her case. Or you need to be born into my family. And let's say we did go through with the process and do the adoption. Well, then after you were in my family, the very first day I would tell you to cut the grass and wash the car, and you would probably look at me and tell me that's silly. I thought you said I didn't need to do that to be a part of the family. And I would say you don't need to do that to be a part of the family. But because you are part of the family, go wash the car and cut the lawn. See, being a part of this family gives you responsibility. Responsibility that you need to take seriously. It was my wife and my mercy that brought you into the family. We adopted you. We spent all the money. We went through all the records. We did all the things that we had to do. That's our mercy. You didn't deserve to be in this family. But you are. That's our 
mercy side. The grace side is now giving you more than you deserve. And part of that is you having the responsibility of acting as you should in the context of this family. Eventually, we would like our children to act as a member of our family from their heart and not just their head. We would like them to embrace the family values, the, the family purposes. When they do that, life is sweet. I'm God's child. He loves me. No matter what I do in life, legalistically or rules-wise, will not change his love for me. Oh, my inheritance might change and the things that happen in my life might change. But his love for me is going to be constant. It's my responsibility to know what he requires of family members and to live in that context. It really doesn't make me legalistic. It makes me wise. We need to rethink how we talk to people and what we think about legalism. Thanks for spending some time with me today in this program called Nighttime. I'm Dave Wager. Coming to you from the studios of Relate365.com in White Lake, Wisconsin. A division of Silver Birch Ranch. You can go to Relate365.com and get more episodes of Nighttime and other resources that we've made specially for you. Good night.